If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City, one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City. The scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, the fourth chapter, verses 16 to 21, under the heading, The Rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here ends this reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Well, good morning, Mayflower. You're looking pretty good for 60. <laughs> Congratulations and happy, happy anniversary. I'm so delighted to be here with you this weekend, and I thank you and your pastors for the kind invitation. On September 1st, 2014, I began my work as the pastor of the Riverside Church in the city of New York. Moving from a congregation of about 200 to a massive cathedral was like taking a drink of water out of a fire hose. And so I was busy trying to get to know the incredible people, history, structure, and traditions of that institution until precisely November 24th, 2014, when a grand jury in Ferguson, Missouri, decided that there would be no trial for Officer Darren Wilson, who shot and killed 18-year-old Michael Brown. Everything about my job changed in that moment because the day-to-day -day work of the pastorate became overshadowed with those questions of institutional integrity and relevance that all of us are asking. Is there a future for the church? It's nice, of course, to preach a sermon on Sunday, make a casserole, make some hospital visits, but those questions, you know them. What is the role of people of faith in the most pressing crises in our society? 
does the church have any relevance at all? Those questions, they wouldn't stay in the background anymore. They kept elbowing their way to the front of the conversation. I kept being reminded, these are not theoretical questions anymore. So shortly after that verdict was returned, I boarded a plane with some faith leaders and spent 24 hours in St. Louis. During those hours, we were immersed in learning about deeply flawed government, judicial, educational, financial, law enforcement, and other systems. We learned about Dred Scott, his wife Harriet, and their two daughters, Eliza and Lizzie, who were denied their freedom and very personhood. And we saw unaccredited schools in poor minority neighborhoods. And we rode down Florissant Street in Ferguson, where most of the buildings were boarded up and dark. And then we went past the most beautiful new police station. And outside, a row of National Guardsmen in full riot gear, lined up shoulder to shoulder, holding automatic weapons and protecting the police office station. Across the street from them stood a small crowd of peaceful protesters who had determined they would not stop showing up since August 9th, 2014, when Michael Brown was murdered. It couldn't have been more than 20 feet that separated those two groups, but it was clear that the space between them was filled with more than asphalt and concrete. It was filled with generations of misunderstanding and mistrust. It was filled with injustice, born of ignorance, fear, hatred, apathy, filled with the legacy of broken systems, broken families, and the memories of sons and fathers, mothers and daughters, of law enforcement and civilians alike who would never come home again. That narrow gap of street held the original sin of our nation, the sin of our humanity. We went from there to the place where Michael Brown died, where his body laid in the street for four and a half hours, and piles of stuffed animals and cards and makeshift crosses still couldn't cover the blood stains on the road. Then we went to a church basement where we listened to young organizers talk about what they were doing and why. They knew they were talking to faith leaders, but you could tell that didn't impress them one bit. In fact, the more they talked, the more their message was clear. The church is not showing up. The church has no relevance for me, for my life, for this moment, for the injustice and brokenness and despair that colors my world, none. All of our potlucks and hospital visits and meticulously planned worship services are doing nothing to stop them from dying in the street. On the bus ride back to the hotel that night, everybody sat in darkness and no one said one thing. And I wondered if all of the colleagues who were riding with me were thinking the same thing I was. We know the church, this institution we've been handed, its grand history and legacy. In this moment, is there anything of substance or transformative power that the church can offer the world at all. 
Anniversaries are such wonderful celebrations of decades of meaningful ministry, and it sounds to me like you've had a wonderful weekend here, remembering the past and all of the life and love that has happened in this community. Anniversaries are also moments to look to the future, to hear again the call of God for our community, and to step forward with courage. Thinking about how you might do that, I remembered a moment in Jesus's life when he was facing the same challenge. As you heard, we met Jesus this morning in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and he's just come out of 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And for all his doubts and fears about what's ahead of him, he was determined to begin. And as you heard, he started out with a bang, filled with the Holy Spirit, a celebrity all over the Galilean countryside. My daughter would say, the Beyonce of Jerusalem, or something like that. I think that Jesus, having grown up going to temple with his parents as a young child, had a high regard for the institution, history, legacy, and message it represented. Because when he got ready to kick things off, to start his ministry in earnest, that's exactly where he went, to the temple. He marched right into that storied institution and stood up to read ancient words that had perhaps become a little rote. They were the words of Isaiah, words about bringing good news to the poor, releasing the captives, letting the oppressed go free. And when he finished, the text says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Those were the ancient words of a prophet who believed that people of faith were the ones to do that critical work. But nobody in the temple that day really believed it could happen with any integrity or power. But Jesus, he wasn't buying that. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which seems to me to say all of the promise and possibility and power of God's invitation to reconciliation with the world is right here in your history and tradition and community. Today, we're doing a handoff. Whatever it looks like to restore sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this is still our work sound impossible? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. You've been doing it for 60 years. If you sit and think for just a few minutes about your best experiences of church, you will know that we can do this. We can step into a future we cannot see and be people who make the kind of healing and reconciliation that Jesus invited real and true. A few years ago, at my previous church in Washington, D.C., we were facing some serious issues of conflict, broken relationship, inability to understand each other around the issue of immigration. We were trying to cultivate a diverse community in a city with the largest population of undocumented immigrants from El Salvador, together with federal employees who were tasked with the enforcement of stringent immigration laws including routine detention and deportation. And in our church at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, all of these people would sit together in worship. But as issues around immigration enforcement and reform began to escalate, it was clear that the national tensions outside the walls of our church were making their way into the life of our community. 
What could we do? There were breaches of relationship on the verge of happening. There were failures of programs we'd worked for together for so long. The health of our community was on the line. And so with some prayer and thought and wisdom, some wise leaders in our church began organizing conversations. They were little house meetings all over the city where eight to 10 people of different backgrounds would agree just to hear each other's stories over a meal. Just one evening, just a small group of people. The house meeting that I attended is an experience I will never forget in all of my life. About eight people were there, including a few single folks, me and my kids, a gay man who was there with his partner who worked at a very high level in immigration and customs enforcement, and a family of four undocumented immigrants from El Salvador. I didn't know what to think when I walked in that night, but as the evening unfolded, I swear I saw something that, for me, embodied just what You've Jesus was talking to the preaching about and teaching when he read those from Mayflower words Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information the about the, the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd, she talked a block west and with of Portland. While her Thank you now for listening. 19-year-old eldest son translated about saving and saving and scraping the money it would take to hire a coyote, a guide, to cross them across the Rio Grande River into Texas, where they could make it to their families. They traveled through treacherous terrain, threats of violence. They were trying to leave behind, dogging them at every step pushing their young children to walk endlessly in the heat, running out of water and food, being taken advantage of at every opportunity until they finally got to the bank of the river, ready to cross. She spoke about her fear, dread, really, of navigating through the rushing current. They were holding onto a rope one by one, following the coyote through the river. Her husband was up ahead of her, hanging onto their eight-year-old, and she was toward the back with the three-year-old strapped to her back. Suddenly, about halfway across the river, he slipped off. Her baby slipped off, and the current caught him and pulled him away out of her grasp under the water. By this time in her story, the entire living room was quiet. Her son, who was translating, could only continue translating in a halting whisper, too choked up with the memory. And her husband, he sat there in silence with his head in his hands. Then she continued. She let go of the rope, and she went after her baby. Of course she did. Diving under the water, she managed just to grab his pants leg and desperately, with all her strength, pull him back to her. Together they came up gasping, the baby crying, the current pulling them away from the rest of the family. In the end, they made it across and they made it through many other harrowing experiences to the safety of family in the DC area where they could build a life from scratch. They were now hourly laborers, their children 19 and 11. It was a stunning, story. 
But the most stunning thing of all is that this was no anonymous recounting. Across the room from us, sobbing, sat people with whom we worshiped every Sunday. And to think that 11-year-old David, who brightened up Sunday school every single week, loved to sing in the children's choir, hugged me at the door after worship every single Sunday, could have been lost? These are people we love. I think we all got to a different place that night across the divide of misunderstanding and pain to suddenly realize the gift of those relationships is so deeply worth the pain of learning to understand each other. This is the hard work of beloved community. When we do that hard, hard work of living in relationship in church with people we love, we find that we can stand in the divide of policy, opinion, politics, and somehow, some way, bridge a gap that seemed totally unbridgeable before. This is beloved community. This is what the world needs. This is the church. We so desperately need the church to take up the core of its identity, why it came to be in the first place, and what we believe so deeply about our role in God's redemptive work in the world. And we need a handoff to let go of the trappings of the past in whatever way we must in order to become more boldly this kind of beloved community. What does that look like? Stand on the side of the oppressed? Yes. Of course, this is our ancient foundational and urgent call. But I think we're going to have to do more than that. Those young organizers in Ferguson need more. Because if the first time we're meeting those who are different from us is in the street, in protest and anger after another tragedy, then we have failed. It's easier for us to hear these stories and feel convicted to join a march for racial justice or the undocumented. It is harder to stand with protesters and to reach out to the police department. It's harder for the undocumented mother and the ICE official to serve communion together. Our call is deeper and harder. It's the role of standing in the gap, the gap between the oppressed and the privileged, modeling and facilitating hard and painful conversations and midwifing the birth of this common ground when the divides are so deep and the pain so raw and the perspective so different that there seems to be no hope at all. This is the unique call of the church. We know how to do this because we follow the one who modeled sacrifice and love at all costs, who called us not to institutional preservation or strategic congregational growth, but to hard, tear-filled, trusting, healing relationship to beloved community. The world doesn't know how to do this, but you know how to do this. And if we can just make that handoff and look and step boldly into the future, then we can lead the way. A colleague of mine tells a story of an inner city priest who, after years of seeing the local gang claim too many children to lives of violence and crime, confronted the gang leader and told him he was not gonna stand by 
and watch any longer. The gang leader's response, you will lose and I will win. Because when these children walk to school in the morning, I'm there. And when they come home in the afternoon, I am there. When they play in playgrounds and run errands for their parents, I am there. I am there, and you are not, and I will win. Whether our communities are plagued by gang violence or poverty, predatory lending, deportation threats, too many of our neighbors look at the hopelessness of the world around them and believe that the words of Jesus that day in the temple cannot possibly be true. They believe there is no release for the captives, no sight for the blind. But this is our gospel mandate because today, this scripture has come true in this place. Mayflower, as you look toward the next 60 years together, may you, like Jesus, take the hand off of the past and do the hard and beautiful work of building the future in beloved community. Happy anniversary and may God bless you. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching from Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m., and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.